Coming up on The Mark Divine Show. It's so focused on what you're doing on the task at hand. Everything else just starts to melt away. Action awareness are going to merge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, most importantly, is going to get really quiet, going to diminish. Usually you just get so sucked into what you're doing that five hours go by in five minutes. shows up in combat, action sports, and throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. Hi, this is Mark Devine, and this is The Mark Devine Show. On this show, I talk to folks from all walks of life to figure out what makes people courageous and how to operate it at peak performance in a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Today, we're going to talk about peak performance aging with Stephen Kotler, and we're going to look into his new book called Nar Country, Growing Old, Staying Rad. Stephen's a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and executive director at the Flow Research Collective. He's one of the world's leading experts on human performance and flow. He's also co-founder, along with his wife, Joy, of the Buddy Sue Hospice Home for Old Dogs, which is a canine care facility and rescue facility, and also the Rancho de Chihuahua Dog Rescue and Sanctuary. Steve, thanks so much for joining me today. So good to see you again. It's great to see you, Mark, as always. I had so much fun doing your crowdcast a couple of weeks ago. That was just a blast. What a great idea. Yeah, that was a good time. Yeah, thanks for having me on that. Stephen, you know, we've talked before about your work with Flow Research Collective and prior to that, the Flow Genome Project. And I know that you you probably get this question a lot, but I'm going to throw it out there. How do you define flow? <laughs> yeah. So what's funny about this is, to the best of my knowledge, I have never personally had a definition of flow. Science has a definition of flow that I have I have been trying to be a proponent of, but nobody seems to hear that part. They do hear the uh, personal part. So it's an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And it refers to any of those moments of total absorption and rapt attention when you get so focused on what you're doing on the task at hand, everything else just starts to melt away. Action awareness are going to merge, your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, most importantly, is going to get really quiet, going to diminish. Time will pass strangely. Usually you just get so sucked into what you're doing that five hours go by in five minutes. Occasionally you can get that freeze frame effect from anybody who's been in a car crash, shows up in combat, action sports, things like that. And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical go through the roof. In terms of what's optimized in flow, it's a fairly long list. We can go into it if we want to, but it's like a yeah, yeah. bunch of stuff on the physical side, a ton of stuff on the mental side, and all of it significantly higher than baseline. Is it something that one does or is it something that happens as a result of certain circumstances? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Both and. Both and. So the work that I've been involved in, which is looking at the, trying to decode the neurobiology of flow. So what's going on in the brain and the body moving into this state. It's a full body experience, right? We see regular changes in brain activity and respiration and heart rate and, you know, facial muscle signatures, things like that. From a neurobiological standpoint, we've got it fairly decoded. And what we've learned is that flow states have triggers, preconditions that lead to more flow. And there are 26 that have been discovered. There's probably way more. That's just what we've discovered. All of them seem to work the same way. If you cut past the like whiz bang, Flow can only show up when all of our attention is focused right here, right now. So that's what all the triggers do. They work on the attention system and they drive attention into the present moment. 
and they keep you focused on sort of a limited field of attention. And some of those triggers, for example, are internal pattern recognition. When we link two ideas together, right, in a new way. So this can be when you've done a crossword puzzle, you get an answer right and feel that little rush of pleasure. That's dopamine. That's an internally generated focusing mechanism based on linking two ideas together. So I just wrote a book where there's a bunch of skiing in it. When skiers look at like a snowbank and go, oh, I can use that snowbank to throw my body sideways and grind across it or whatever, skateboard trick too. That's interpretation of terrain. That's pattern recognition. So these are internally generated ways to do that. If I put myself into a situation of high risk, risk is another flow trigger. So is that internal? Is it external? They're on the very sort of fine line. And even with risk, you you know as well as I do, there's actual risk, which is negligible on performance versus perceived risk, which is what really impacts performance the most. And that's in the eyes of the beholder, for sure. So when I say yes, I think of things in terms of embodied cognition. Embodied cognition says like we're brains, we're bodies, and we're built in the environment, and the environment's built in in culture. And all of that is the impact we're looking at. And you, I would guess, would probably look at me and go, Stephen, what about the whole spiritual side of it? And I would once again say, yes, if that's true too, that's also going to impact it on top of culture, right? And it'll come in that way. Open question from a scientific point of view, but like, that's how I think of it. So I don't, that internal, external line, I'm not quite sure, but I, what I will say is this. Flow is built in to all mammals, all humans and most mammals. Most mammals can drop into flow, especially all the group mammals. So like if you've ever, there's horse and rider flow. Dogs get into flow all the time with humans. Cross-species flow is what that's called. So it's old. It exists in all mammals. This is how we do peak performance, right? When crisis situations arise, flow is what the body switches into to solve the problem if everything's working correctly. Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, this comment about animals. I mean, how do we know that animals aren't just always in a state of flow? Interesting question. The godfather of flow psychology is, is me high chicks at me high. And this is actually how we met. Years and years ago, because I was always working on the neurobiology of flow, we didn't cross paths that much. I was already 10, 12 years into my flow research. And it started when I was over these questions of do animals get into flow or not? Do they live in perpetual flow states? What does that mean? And I actually reached out to Miha Chikisemihai on that question about do dogs get into flow? What are you looking at? I think there's open questions. So we do work with rescue animals. Thank you for doing that. It's important work. I appreciate that. I mean, to me, like I get so much out of it. Yeah, it it's ridiculous for me to sort of like accept any praise. It's so rewarding and I like it so much. And I feel like, you know, I get so much out of it, but I, I will pass it along to my wife who does a lot more of the hard work. Maybe you have to get that one. <laughs> but what I will tell you is this. I started getting into flow states with my dogs while running in this kind of pack hunting. And what I started to notice is there was a way we would run together that would get us into flow. They would start to try to egg me into the state. And you could tell they were altered. Like you can look at pupil dilation changes in flow. Same thing in dogs. So you could tell they were altered. And I started to notice, wow, they seem to be like pushing me towards this thing. Like it seems to be as addictive to them as it is to humans, which seems to suggest they don't constantly live in flow. Neurobiologically, we know you can't live in flow. Humans can't live in flow. It's a four-stage cycle. Is it totally different in other mammals? Nobody's looked, 
right? And, and I don't even know how we would look at this point. But what I'm basing it on is two things. One, I think animals have much greater long-term memory capacity than most people give them credit for. Like they have a past, a present, and a future. We've seen this on lots of different levels of research. And it seems like they love flow as much as humans, and they will try to you know, egg other people into flow and things like that. So I think there's some behavioral stuff that I think points towards it, but how do you know? You'd have to become an animal. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to become an animal. I find it fascinating because you know you just made made a comment which I don't know. I guess I would challenge, but that humans can't live in perpetual flow because the experience of a master, for instance, a martial arts grandmaster, Zen master, right, who's attained the state that the Eastern traditions would call enlightenment, is is living in perpetual flow. There's changes in the physiology that happen dramatically when that shift occurs, which allows for much more energy to be. I guess, housed or flow through the body, you know, that kundalini energy they talk about. And the experience is in a perpetual now state, which has experienced all those things that you talked about. There's a bunch of research on this and there's a bunch of translations. So what's interesting is, for example, if you go into Tibetan Buddhism, we'll go to Zen in a second, but you go to Tibetan Buddhism, they have a direct translation of the word flow. There's a word that means flow and it is different from what they mean by enlightenment. In Zen, to go into that tradition, Satori appears to be flow, but Satori is a brief experience of enlightenment. And it seems like enlightenment, and there are a bunch of people, including my mentor, Dr. Andrew Newberg, who've worked a lot on what's the neurobiology of enlightenment. Is there something going on? But when I say we can't live in flow, one of the things that happens in flow is there's a peak concentration of dopamine and uh, possibly of norepinephrine at the front end, but definitely of dopamine. Norepinephrine and dopamine in peak concentrations have a 20 minute shelf life in the brain. Right. That's right. how long they do their work and then they, they fade away. So what we seem to be meaning by sort of this permanent enlightenment seems to involve changes in one in a part of the brain called the temporal parietal junction. The TPGA gets very active in flow. It's the reason empathy expands in flow and wisdom. That's the part of the brain that does perspective taking when you right. see things from other perspectives. So there are, it does seem like there are permanent changes in brain function in enlightenment, like it's a real thing. It doesn't seem to be permanent flow. And I think the reason, one of the reasons is enlightenment is a not too high, not too low, very much in the middle. And flow is a big spike. I think the attitude, sort of the detached nowness that you get in flow stays in enlightenment but i think some of the peak activities go the question one of the questions would be do we see like the same spike in creativity some of the stuff we can measure in flow right creativity or fast twitch muscle response if we were to you know examine people who are enlightened quote unquote we see those things all the time those would be the questions i'd want to answer but it does seem like enlightenment is a slightly different thing from flow and certainly the neurochemical portion of the experience just based on how those things work in the body, that's definitely different. Yeah. We're really talking about a psychophysiological temporary experience. It's a state. Yeah, not a stage. And that's, the, that's one of the differences with enlightenment. Enlightenment's a stage, right? It's a permanent shift. And I think that, you know, I've often conflated this type of flow we're talking about with like the optimal experience of flowing in life. Like when everything is just I'm not on a ski hill navigating terrain in a state of rapture with, where time is flowing down, but my life is just in sync because I'm aligned with my vision for the future. Everything seems to be synchronicities happening. Everything's lining up, and I call that flow. 
but it's like life flow. I'm not disagreeing with you. That's a real, in my opinion, you're describing a very real phenomenon. Everybody I know has had that experience as well. And what I always say when I talk about flow, I'm like, look, I can talk about the science till, you know, tomorrow morning, but I'm only going to cover about 90% of what happens in flow states. And there's this 10%, one of which is the synchronicities with life, the like over a longer scale, or what do we mean by luck, right? So there's this, this flow over time synonymous with luck, right? Right. Like those are questions that are, these are real questions. They're philosophers' that, questions though. They're interesting and I love them. And I, it's the cutting edge of flow research and trying to answer some of those questions is really neat and really drives me forward. But I don't think we have any of the answers. And also like I'm comfortable saying, Hey, we don't know, nor may we ever know. Right. The uncertainty doesn't bother me i'm I'm good like i like it that means i have a job and i get curiosity (laughs) there's more books that's phenomenal it's great oh like you haven't written enough already when's that gonna come to a halt well mark you gotta remember you think i'm writing for anything other than to preserve my mental health like (laughs) i'm writing first and foremost because this is like you know this is some kind of therapy to me right I'm better that. in the world when, I, when I'm writing. Yeah, no, I get that. That's your creative outlet. I love that. The PR that goes along, those are the questions that we could be asking, right? Because I, I don't know on those about questions questions like that. But the writing, I mean, it's what I do for me and I love it. Writing is a, it can be both painful and joyful at the same time, which is really interesting, right? How something can be both painful and joyful. It was so funny. I was talking to my wife this morning because I went skiing yesterday and she, she automatically assumes because skiing is my favorite thing to do on earth that like I had an amazing time. And I said to her, I said, Joy, you got to understand skiing, like writing, like my relationship with you, these are all marriages. <laughs> They're lifelong things. There are good days. There are bad days. Right. There are days where you go do the thing that you love the most in the world and it just punches you in the mouth 60 times. Right. <laughs> like, that's, that's what it is. Like, so true. And I think that's the same with everybody. I distrust people who are like, oh my God, this is the thing I do. And I'm, and, you know, it's like, the thing that I do that I love the most also means that I am being vulnerable to the fact that it can break my heart faster than almost anything else. I love it. Well, and that's like people get happiness so wrong. They think happiness is a perpetual state of, of pleasure. Yes. And it's not, right? It's engagement with something at a level where you are content in spite of the highs and the lows. So I think that's totally true. The other thing that's interesting is... So people think the scale goes from pain to pleasure, that we're on like there's this pain to pleasure scale, and that's how we actually work. But it's not true. If you look at the data, extreme pain is the worst that we feel on Earth, but the best we feel is always group flow. A great deal of the time when you're in flow or group flow, you're uncomfortable. Like you think about athletes in flow, like you're physically in pain, right? The flow allows you to forget the fact that you're in pain, but like, it's not exactly pleasure. And so the scale, I believe, and I've been trying to do more research on this, and I haven't really written much about it, but I've talked about it. So the thing that you get in group flow and flow is, I, I say it gives you 360 degree creativity, meaning you're performing at your best. So any direction you go in, you're going to be your best at, right? So it's the most fluid you can be with a group in flow. It's even bigger. You know, everybody can go in different directions together. So you've got a lot of options. I think it's between no choice, which is what's so rough about extreme pain. All you can do is focus on the pain. There's no room for anything else to group flow, which is maximum choice. I think it's no choice to maximum choice. That is actually what we call pleasure pain. 
because pleasure pain doesn't govern human behavior, as you just pointed out, the way we think it does. It doesn't actually add up into what we see in the world and what we experience as performers. This is true. And this is what training, you know, or repetition and training and realism and training and like your training for, for park skiing, what it does is it, it, it narrows the gap between the pleasure and pain, you know, through that repetition of training and learning new skills and constantly, you know, facing the unknown, which you could say is like the fear factor. What is unknown is really what is, you know, creates the sense of fear. So you eliminate the fear. We talked about this on your podcast by moving closer to that. And so what you end up doing is you have a much narrower band of range or band between pain and pleasure, right? And so you can bounce between them really quite rapidly. You know, I think about it on this ski hill. So we've got a ton of snow in Tahoe, which means that lines that are normally incredibly narrow and skinny uh, and steep are now a little less steep and a little less narrow, right? In some places, they're, they're totally filled in, but it's great training. So what I keep doing is I keep putting myself back in the mountain and skiing these incredibly rowdy lines that some lines that I could never ski, I actually couldn't ski, but I'm just trying to get the visuals down, right? I'm just trying to get my brain used to like what it's going to see skiing these lines. And I'm trying to ski through the moves as if there wasn't a ton of snow the way I would normally have to do. Right. And all of it is about shrinking the unknown That's down right. yeah. so that when, when it really becomes ski season, some of the snow melts away and the challenge comes back. I am mentally prepared to be able to go after some of these these larger challenges. But what I always think about, because it means that every day I have to go and do scary stuff. And there's always like one or two things where I really don't want to do what I'm about to do. And I feel <laughs> awful on the front end, right. right? And yet the highlight of my day is going to be how I feel on the back end. That's right. Like, it's so funny because you can ski a line and what does it take? 20 seconds, 10 seconds? And the first five seconds are absolute terror. And somewhere in that middle five seconds, terror switches into, oh my God, I've got this. And then by the, you come out and it's the most amazing thing you've done all day. And it's so, so close. I keep watching it happen in my brain because I keep doing this over and over. And I'm like, where's the switch? When does it flip? Because it happens every time, provided you know I, I put myself in the hospital coming out the back end of it. But I've been watching it a lot on the inside because I'm fascinated by how thin that line really actually is. I love that. The amount of like true pleasure, I'm not talking about hedonistic pleasure, but pleasure from an accomplishment like that is directly related to the amount of fear that you have to overcome to get to it. <laughs> I totally agree. I love that. It makes so much sense to me, and it's true. This is one of the things that I think is challenging to talk about with peak performance. Definitely applies, you know, when it comes to like NAR Country, my new book, and peak performance aging. This is, this is also really relevant, I think. Part of what we mean by meaning, and I mean this like neurobiologically as organisms, right, is essentially the satisfaction of a job well done. Right. Like if you do something long and hard, not something that takes a month, but something that takes years and you do start stacking year long or multi-year accomplishments on top of one another. Mm -hmm. Like I don't mean accomplishments in the real world. I mean, like I set myself a long challenge and I met it kind of thing. We get a lot of what we call meaning out of that. Well, the reason I mean this is a difficult discussion in peak performance is, as you know, people are so hungry for results on the front end. What is my purpose? What is my, me? you know, all these things. And you're like, well, I can tell you how to turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose, but it doesn't change the fact that the biology underneath that process is probably a year to two years long 
that's how long it's going to take in the brain, the body right. for that sort of thing. It's like when people talk about, I can come back from an ACL tear in a year. And I'm like, well, you, you can physically, but mentally we know that your central governor is going to keep your knee from performing, right. you know, full speed for at least a year and a half, no matter what you do with your physiology, right. because there's an internal governor saying, no, no, don't hurt yourself again. And it's based on sympathetic activation in the nervous system. And like, nobody's figured out how to hack that yet. Right. Right. You can hack the physiology, but the, the mental side of it, we haven't figured out a way to hack yet. So some of these things I find in, in peak performance and even peak performance aging where you're, you're like, I know you've got a ticking clock and it feels like it's running out. So you want these things really fast. It still doesn't change that. Like some of these things, including what we mean by meaning really take a long time to accrue and you have to earn them. It's consistency over years. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. I have a lot of clients who are like, you know, I'm having a real challenge trying to define my, we call it the, your three Ps, my purpose, my passions, and my principles. And then we say, you know, if you can define those and then figure out what the center mass is, right, then you can define your mission in life. And um, I say, well, that's, that's okay, because it's always in a state of becoming. You're not going to be able to just grab it right now. It's something that you're moving toward. And so get out into the arena and keep moving toward it, but create a reflective practice where now you're reflecting upon the feedback and the, and the insights you're getting from your work. And I mean both work on your development, right, as well as work in the world. We call that self-mastery and service. And just continue to reflect through your contemplation, meditation, journaling, whatever, and asking those questions. And pretty soon, it starts to be revealed to you, right? So you get the external revelation, which is coming through feedback and engagement with the world. And then you get the internal insight of how, how you're starting to mold yourself in the environment. And then what happens is suddenly, after, like you said, a year or two of meaningful engagement trying to solve this lifetime riddle you start to get some clarity around it and you call that meaning and i agree with yeah, that. no i like i listen to you talk what i'm thinking is one of the things that i find really interesting is you hear very often in the world actions speak louder than words what people often miss is the same is true when talking to yourself some of the the revelations about like internal mission and things like that your brain is watching what you do every day right? One of the things you're doing when you meditate every day, right? You're not just working on like calm, cool, and collected during the meditation. You're teaching the brain. You have a goal-directed system. We're, a goal, we're goal-directed machines. You're teaching the brain that calm, cool, and collected is a goal that you value enough that you're putting daily energy into it. Your brain watches what you do, right? It's very hard to lie to yourself that way. So most people don't actually realize that like, we talk to ourselves through our actions, right? Like, it's just like when we deal with the real world. Do you trust somebody's words or do you trust their actions? Well, you're gonna, you like their words, but it's their actions you're gonna learn to trust over time. The brain is the same way, especially with ourselves. This is why I always say the most dangerous thing in the world is if you're goal setting, routinely like not accomplish your goals, you're training your brain that it's just fine to not accomplish your goals. Right. We're homeostatic organisms, so if just fine to not accomplish your goals, why waste the energy? This is the same thing we see with mindset. Right. right. If you've got a fixed mindset, the brain won't bother expending the energy to learn from mistakes, because why burn the energy? We gotta save it. 
right? That's what a fixed mindset is doing. It's saying, don't spend the energy on this thing. Right. I think it's interesting. Some of the things that like we talk about in common, like we know, everybody knows actions speak louder than words, but we, we miss. This is very true when we talk to ourselves. You mentioned um, him earlier, the, the gentleman you connected with, um, and I'll butcher his name, but I call him Shits My Hell. <laughs> Michal Shits My Hell. <laughs> it's not how you say it. How do you say okay, it? <laughs> um, first, I got to give you a story with this. Okay. So I butchered his name. as Everybody butchers his name. It's impossible to pronounce. First book I wrote about, about flow, which was West of Jesus. I mentioned Mihai's name. Mihai was on NPR in Cleveland. Phone rings on the station. And the caller says, would you please tell the moron in the chair? It's Mihai Chick sent me high. Mihai, Mihai Chick, Chick sent, sent me high. high. Oh, that's cool. Um, okay. Which is a fanatic. You know, if you want, if you want one, there you have it. <laughs> Well, that's a lot better than shit's mouth. <laughs> he was such a huge thinker. Most people have only read Flow or Creativity. They haven't read the full body of his work. He really was one of the smartest people of the, of the last century. He worked on so many things. And, you know, even the work I'm doing on peak performance aging comes right out of the work, out of Flow work, right? Uh, one of the reasons I got into peak performance aging is Flow is the engine of adult development. It's how we gain complexity and adaptation and grow as people. It helps us grow up. It expands empathy and wisdom. It's literally an, an engine of maturity. And we know that, you know, the quality of the second half of your life, big determinant is the amount of flow you get. In fact, the Flow Research Collective, I don't know if we're going to change this, but right now, if you want to take our peak performance aging training, right, it's bundled with our introduction to flow training because the flow stuff is so important that like putting it together almost works better right now. Yeah, in fact, that's why I brought him up because one of his beautiful models was that flow can be activated when the level of challenge in whatever that you're participating in is slightly greater than the level of skill that you have. So that kind of points to what you were talking about, about development. So if we can actively participate in the accruing of skill, and then when we go to perform, ensure that the challenge is just a little bit higher, then not only are we developing, but we're activating flow, which is helping us develop. And so you get this kind of virtuous kind of upward spiral. I want to take it one step further yeah. into the peak performance. I do think because this is so neat. So yes, absolutely. Right. That that challenge skills balance. And there's questions about like how much above your ch skill level should the challenge be and, and things like that. But one of the things that's really neat as you sort of move into the second half of our lives with the challenge skill set and all that stuff is because we're gaining both expertise, which is say, you know, the not this not the skill, right? And we gain wisdom, which is like all the emotional intelligence that comes with gaining the skill. Right. So it turns out if you wanna protect against cognitive decline, dementia, Alzheimer's, just like the mental half of aging, the two best ways to do it is expertise and wisdom. And it turns out it's because the prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that's right back here, which is basically where expertise and wisdom both live. That's the most vulnerable to cognitive decline. It's the newest structure in the brain from an evolutionary perspective. It's the most vulnerable. And when you get expertise and wisdom without getting too technical, they're just huge neural networks. So there's a lot of redundancy across the prefrontal cortex. So not only when you're walking up the challenge skills balance and getting into flow, are you becoming more complex, more adaptive, more mature, all that stuff. You're actually, because you're developing expertise and wisdom, you're protecting the brain against cognitive decline in the future, which I think is really, really cool. It makes, from a biological point of view, it makes sense that wisdom is neuroprotective, right? Isn't the very, the very thing you, we want to get passed on 
And it turns out it actually helps us live longer and pass along more. It's actually a, a good design. Whoever did the designing, good design. Imagine that, yeah. You know, with NAR Country, you talk about peak performance aging. You've used that term a couple of times, but I think I love that term. The conventional wisdom is that to age well, keep your brain engaged, do some exercise, eat well, make sure you're getting, you know, all those kind of things. And, you know, you will age well. And what you're saying is something slightly different. Like you don't discount that, but it's how you engage in those things, right? I mean, in a sense, not saying a whole lot that's all that different, but it turns out the like the quality of life interventions that you're speaking about, right? We have learned a ton about, like we know which ones work the best and how they work. And, and so let's take exercise, right? Get some exercise is absolutely true, but it turns out if you really want to perform at your best over time, you need to hit all five categories of functional fitness, strength, stamina, balance, agility, and flexibility. And it turns out certain things like dynamic motion, right? I always say dynamic motion is key. Dynamic is a, is a word that means all five of those categories at once, but it also means like you're using strength and coordination at the same time. When those things happen, not just sort of good for the heart, good for it, those things produce angiogenesis and neurogenesis. So that's the birth of new neurons and the birth of the new blood vessels that get energy to those neurons. So yeah, you can get exercise, right? My parents walk every day. It's better than not walking every day, right. but they're not protecting bone density. Right. Your bones are the mineral storehouses for the body. So your brain runs on calcium. Where do you think it comes from, right? So bone density, which you get from lifting heavy weights and doing specific things over time, walking is great, but it's not going to do anything on that front. And it's not going to birth new neurons and those sorts of things. So it's not like the old idea around how to age gracefully are wrong is that we've gotten very specific with it. And the other thing that I want to mention is, so the older idea is that all of our mental skills and our physical skills declined over time. There's nothing we can do to stop it. The new research has revealed that like we had it half right. All our skills do decline over time, but all of them are use it or lose it skills, right? So you never stop training those skills. You can hang on to them, even advance them far later in life. Some of what's changed is on the cognitive side, right? We know all the things that go wrong with the brain over time. We now also know how to fix them, but the interventions are, are wild. There's things like we've got video games that work against certain aspects of cognitive to train that up and things like that. So some of it is our training menu has expanded considerably because we've gotten more precise based on, you know, what you're looking for and, and, and what's available. When I say our training menu, I don't mean the Flow Research Collective, I mean humanity's yes. training menu. Right. And we've gotten very, very specific. So peak performance aging, then these are all tools for lifelong learning, but you want to regularly engage in challenging, creative and social activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play and take place in novel outdoor environments. Mm -hmm. That's the combination. And if you can regularly do that, you're checking all of the boxes. And what's different from that to me is it's a lot more precise. And what you don't hear in that is what you hear dominating the the aging conversation, the longevity conversation, which is supplements and right. biohacking and this and that. And I'm not saying those things are bad, but I'm saying, look, we've got 30 or 40 years of research that shows this stuff is is astounding. And we, you know, we know, like when I say you should, you should engage in uh, challenging, creative and social activities, social activities, we now know 
robust social networks translate into an extra seven and a half years of healthy longevity. So like we've really measured it. That isn't the same for any of the, like the biohacks are brand new. We have no idea what the long-term results are. Some are going to turn out to be great and a lot are going to turn out to be nonsense. And I'm not saying don't play with those things if you're interested. Of course, play with those things, run the experiments, see what you learn. But like, this is what we absolutely know. And it's, it's really well developed and it's still as with per- physical performance, right? Once you've been in a certain like baseline of health kind of thing, it's the psychological interventions that are, that have the most potency. As a lifetime, you know, martial arts and yogi kind of guy myself, like some of the healthiest people I've seen who are in their eighties and nineties haven't touched a supplement in their lives, nor do they do any of the other crazy Western hacking stuff. They literally just exercise in a very, very dynamic and functional way every day through yoga, asanas, and and being outdoors a lot, you know, like the blue zone peeps. And um, they train their mind. And they train their mind through breath work, through visualization, through, you know, concentration training. Here's another one. So there are nine known causes of aging, right? Maybe there are more, but they're, the scientists have determined, like, there's nine big ones. And, like, certainly there are billions of dollars and dozens of biotech companies aimed at fixing each and every one of those. But if you don't want to wait, all nine of them share one. They are all tied to inflammation. Inflammation is tied to stress. Anything we do, right? Meditation, all that stuff that combats stress, those are anti-aging medicines, right. period. And I think, you know, that's a lot of what you're seeing. And, and I mean, it, you know, obviously uh, in the martial arts traditions, for example, you see it in action sports too. I go to the mountain, I ski with, so many people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, and they're killing it. Yeah. Like, folks, I can't, I can barely keep up with, and they've got decades on me. You know, I see it all the time when I go to Squaw Valley, Palisades Tahoe. Now, there's always a posse of pros there. And everybody always chases Tom Day, who's like an old, one of the old, like early first extreme skiers. He's, I think, 65 or 66 now. But like, you've got like Olympic downhillers in the pack. And he's leading the charge, right? You know what I mean? They're like 18 year old Olympians and he's 66 years old and he's the guy in front. And for a reason. Yeah, totally. My example of that is the surfing community here in Encinitas, right? There's, there's, oh, yeah. And also over in Hawaii, there's some octogenarians who are out there and they're just crushing it, you know, on their longboard. They wouldn't miss a day, right? Unless there's a major storm or something like that. It's just, that's their flow activator. That's their, you know, life energy recharger. And they come out with more energy than they go into the water and it keeps them young. It's incredible. The very first peak performance aging conversation I can remember having was with Laird Hamilton. Yeah. Laird's a great guy. What an interesting In like 95, 96, 97. And we were talking about his neighbor at the time who was then in his 60s, who he surfed with and, you know, Billy, who Laird did everything with. He ended up finally like dying at like 88 or 89. And he was like out there surfing and snowboarding with Laird all the time. But like, I remember the conversation with Laird where we were talking about how exactly what you're seeing. Billy was one, this guy was one example, but like you'd go into the waves and you were like, I'm seeing 60 and 70 and 80 year olds kill it out here. Kill it. Like what you witness in the action sports community, whether it's skiing or surfing or even martial arts take uh, is another example. When you actually go into these communities, you don't see, right? Like you see people killing it much later in life. This is the first place where I started to realize that like the common narrative was really wrong because my daily experience in these communities of practice was totally different. I mean, same thing, by the way, 
when I started doing yoga, which was in the 90s, right? I remember going to my first Ashtanga class, uh, which is what I practiced. And there was a, there was a guy in his 80s and a woman in, in her 80s. And the reason I stuck with it is because I was so pissed that I couldn't do what they, I was like, are you kidding me? I had that same experience. In the and I can't do what she, I was so mad. You know, I'm super competitive. And I was like, are you, no, this is not happening. You know, I hate to tell you, but yoga is about checking the ego at the door. You know, it, was, I mean, it, it worked to my benefit. It's been 30 years. I'm still doing <laughs> yoga, right? Yeah, you're right. It's extraordinary. So one of the things that I think people struggle with is that our culture, the Western culture has largely moved so far away from this idea that challenging yourself physically and mentally is, is good for you, right? They're literally peddling a completely different message, right? So take the easy route. Here's a pill to make you feel better. Here's a pill to lose weight. Here's a pill to live longer. You don't have to suffer anymore, right? We've kind of moved beyond suffering. And that unfortunately has trapped people <laughs> in kind of a lower state of being, I think. You've got to challenge yourself. You've got to challenge your mind. You've got to challenge your body every day. You said it earlier. You've got to do something hard every day. Every day. And multiple times. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I was thinking about it this morning. I had an incredibly heavy ski day yesterday where I skied some of the biggest lines I've ever skied. And I woke up and really tired, right? Really tired. And it was time to take the dogs out and like didn't mind taking them out, but didn't want to do the work along the way. <laughs> but I still like, I doubled the length of the hike. I was like, okay, fine. If you don't want to go uphill fast and hard today, you know, with a weight vest on, that's fine. But we're going for twice as long. Mark, what is so interesting about what you said, and I agree with it so much, is for some reason, people really want to privilege their emotions. Happy or sad in the moment really like seems to matter. Mm -hmm. And if you're a slave to that, that's very, very difficult to overcome from a performance perspective. Right. I've done this for about a decade now. I've, I've been talking to people about those, the things in their life that matter the most to them. Like, what have you done that has made the most difference, changed your future in the most beneficial way? And I've been having this conversation for decades. You know what? Nobody's ever given me an example of, oh, I won, I won the lottery or, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. I inherited a hundred million dollars. You hear, I worked three jobs and, you know, drove a taxi and tended bar to put myself through night school and become a lawyer. You know, what? those are the stories you hear. Those are my stories. Those are your stories. Those are everybody's stories. You don't hear the, oh, I slipped on a banana peel and met my wife. <laughs> it's not how you hear it. It's not how people tell it. And when you ask people that, right? Like people who are making these, like, I don't want to suffer. I want to be so comfortable. Give me a pill decisions. If you ask them the same question, well, what matters the most to you in your life and what's made the biggest difference? They're going to give you these same examples of things that they struggled with for a long time. And finally, you know, try what's amazing to me is people don't even pay attention to the truth of their own history. That's where I sort of get caught by it. Cause I always, just look at the truth of your, look at your own life for an example. Like you've, you've been running this experiment yourself for a while, you know, look at your own life and see, did true happiness ever come from like finding a quick way to like, you know, end suffering and, and quickly? There are exceptions, but as a general rule, right? You don't hear it. Yeah. Not, you know, we don't want to give people the impression that they have to go kick their own ass every day and and then cuz you know you could you could actually then build up resistance so it's important to do the crawl walk run approach and to you know choose reasonable challenges every day and then work that you know kind of like increasing the uh, requirement for skill and increasing the challenge and just like incrementally 
working toward more and more challenge. The thing that, that's worth mentioning here, because I think people get this, screw this up a little bit, is when we talk about the challenge skills balance, right? There's a, when you look under the hood of it, there's like eight to 11 different things that scientists, psychologists mean by challenge and skills. And they range from like confidence levels to energy levels. So what you have to realize is that we're talking about it as if it was like a steady progression, as if like yesterday's challenge, today's challenge, tomorrow, like, and it doesn't work that way because the challenge every day, your headspace is going to be different. Your energy levels are going to be different, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So like you want to meet yourself where you are every day and stretch beyond that. It's not as easy to plot on a graph as you'd want it to be, right? It's like strength games in the gym. Everybody knows this. You'll progress over time, but like a great lifting day on Monday does not mean you're going to have the same kind of, you know what I mean? Like I may set a new bench on Monday. It doesn't mean that I'm going to be able to do it again on Wednesday or Friday, right? And it changes. Like you have to be flexible with that and just know that like, you just want to push yourself a little bit. The other one is that I see a lot, especially if you're dealing with like entrepreneurs and, and re like real go-getters, is they take on challenges that are so great that it's too big for what you're supposed to do in the day, right? And too big, now you're overwhelmed and you think you're doing it because it's going to grab your attention and keep you engaged. And it may, over the long haul, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it's actually kicking in the ass and it's, it's too great. And it's demotivating, it's taking you in the other. So it's really, you have to be humble with it. I always, like with skiing, I have a motto, especially around peak performance aging, it's one inch at a time. And I literally mean an inch. Or writing, same way. When I look back and I review my progress, there's a part of my brain that's always just, it wants more progress, more progress, more progress. But then I have to reframe and be like, well, did you actually go your inch? Oh, you actually went a couple of inches, didn't you? You wanted to go three yards, so you're pissed off. But you actually went like three inches and that was, you went farther than you, you set out to. And that was the point. So some of it is you have to like, I have to manage it that way too, I think. Okay, we're going to take a short break here from the Mark Devine Show to hear a short message from one of our partners. And now back to the show. Humans, I don't know if this is just hardware in the brain or it's a cultural thing, but we tend to over magnify the the failures or the lack of accomplishments or, you know, things that don't go well. And we underemphasize the accomplishments and the things that do go well. And so I think it's important to flip that. Things that don't go well, like in the SEALs, we said, okay, well, whatever. We just learned how not to do it. Let's go ahead and figure out how another way. And so that de-emphasized the failures. And then when we, when we won, we were like, man, even if it was a small win, we're like, good job. You know, we learned to celebrate those wins. And that was a big part of our success, especially the de-emphasizing the failure, because a lot of people lock on those failures that things don't go well, and then they magnify and they blow it out of proportion, and they take it personally as if they are the failure. Yeah, I think shame, self-consciousness, embarrassment, self-criticism. Yeah, those are the killers of performance. They're the killers of performance. They absolutely are. So here's something wild. In peak performance aging, we've been talking about the challenge skills balance. One of the things that, that we figured out at the Flow Research Collective for peak performance aging is that I'm going to use the term older adults. And all I mean by that is you're an older adult. Once the voice in your head starts saying, hey, you're too old for this shit. <laughs> like the minute you, you could be in your 20s, if you've got your that voice, right, that's what I'm, I'm putting you in that category. Okay. So people have been trying to measure the challenge skills balance, the separation for a while. Chick sent me high tried. And he came up with about 
wasn't a real attempt. We tried to validate that. It, it's difficult, but that's a rough episode. What we figured out in older adults is because of allostatic load, which is the impact of stress over time, because of injuries and the fact that this internal governor will keep you happy for about 18 months after an injury, all that stuff, we realized it shrunk. And in, in older adults, it can be as small as like 1% for certain kinds of skill acquisition. So literally, most of our success in running experiments with peak performance aging was like, go slow to go fast. We had to hold people back. I love that. Yeah. But the point there is when you've got like a really thin margin, like a 1% difference between challenge and skills, if you've got shame, self-consciousness, like you've just eaten up that whole 1%. Now you've got an actual performance problem. And I always say that one of the secrets, I think, to peak performance in general, but especially peak performance aging, figure out how you like to learn and don't waver. Like I'm introverted. I want to be bad in private. I don't want to learn in public. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I like to warm up slowly, whether this is as a writer or as an athlete. Like, like there's certain things that get the best performance out of me over time. I don't waver on them anymore. You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. this is exactly how I learn best. So that's what I'm going to aim for every time. You know, some of it is that, you know, the voice in my head is loud. Shame is heavy for me sometimes. I don't want public failures, but I'm getting better and better and better at like being really bad in public at things, but I'm 55 years old. It took me a long time to get there. Right. You know? Yeah. It reminds me of our saying in the team, slow is smooth, smooth is fast. That's how we approach learning. That's how we approach our ops, you know? So let's, let's just be methodical. Let's work the processes. Let's, let's not get ahead of our skis. And then suddenly, you know, as you continue to move through your practice or your, you know, your, your work up toward deployment or even in an, in an individual op, this works. You find that you're actually executing at a very, what would be perceived as a very fast level, but in your mind, it's still slow and methodical because that slowest, smooth, smoothest, fast is kind of activating that, that group flow process and, and everything seems to be within the time domain within your control. But if you try to speed things up, if you rush things, if you don't do the warm up, right? If you get all like, oh, I got to get into this mentally, then you don't activate flow. You prevent flow, you block it in some way. So it's interesting with, with skiing, for example, it takes 20 minutes, four runs or so for most human bodies to be warmed up. That's just how long it takes the human body to warm up. So I watch so many people like it's the first run and they want to go to the hardest. That's right. Yeah. You know, because they want to get it out of the way or they want to start off charging or, or whatever. And I'm like, you do realize that like your body can't perform and it's like, it's not warmed up. Like it doesn't matter what you're trying to do. It's not warmed up and you're actually just going to hurt your performance later. Ours was, you know, you got to go slow to go fast. That's right. It's very much true. The same thing is true with writing. Like I always start my day by editing what I wrote the day before. I know I've got to face a blank page. I know I've got a, this, how many, I have to produce this many new words every day. But that gets my brain into the rhythm of playing with language and, and it fires up because my pattern recognition skills working a little bit. Like it ends up saving me my time later. But it's like I could do like sometimes like it feels like a writing wise, like a two hour, three hour warm up for like 20 minutes of actual writing. It's a four hour writing session. But like the warm up took three hours. And then when I was ready to hit the blank page, I could just fill it. Right. Over time, you start to recognize your rhythms. It's hard to learn it at the front end. That's the advantage of, of consistency is you start to figure this out over time. You're like, oh, wow, 
I go slow first, mm-hmm. I get to go fast later. Oh, okay, that's consistent across. You know, I've seen this again and again. So you stop making those mistakes. Now we got to wrap up here. I don't want to be sensitive to our time, but um, I'm intrigued with one aspect of your training. I'll preface it by saying that I acquired a company called Brute Force Training at the end of last year, and we make uh, weight vests and weighted backpacks for training, like rucksacks, and we make weighted kettlebells, not like metal, but you know, with this combination of rubber mulch and shot, right? So it's really cool, innovative. But training with a weight vest is really powerful, and it's just um, still pretty fringy, but you know, a lot more people are- It's at the heart of what I did in our country. It's how I train. We're like, right. The quick and dirty version is twofold. At the Flow Research Collective, you know, we train people in 130 countries, but the one commonality among all of them is they're all busy, right? So we always look for what I call multi-tool solutions, a single tool that solves multiple problems at once. And when it came to training, so if I started with the weight vest, it was really simple. Like I didn't have time. I was trying to train for this crazy experiment in peak performance aging, and I knew I needed a lot of training. I didn't have time for more training. I was already, like I went to the gym a bunch of times. You know, I did what I did. But part of what I was doing on a daily basis was hiking my dogs. I've got dogs. I have to take them out every day. And I was like, oh, wow, I can add in a weight vest. Right. And so that was where it started with me is how do I get more training in less time? But what I started to realize with the weight vest is for peak performance aging, it's one-stop shopping. You get balance, agility, strength, and stamina. And if you're stretching before and after like you should be, that's almost all the categories. And if you're going uphill faster and coming downhill faster, especially like fast twitch dynamic motion, that's great. Additionally, there's work done that shows weight vests and training with weight vests is one of the only, one of the best ways to protect bone density over time. And it increases bone density, which you have to do for peak performance aging. Also, as you pointed out, like a part of, you know, the formula, peak performance aging demands you have novel outdoor experiences because the brain, you want to preserve the brain most of the neurogenesis in the brain, new neurons, are born in the hippocampus. Hippocampus is the part of the brain that does long-term memory, and it also does location. It evolved. When you have emotionally charged experiences in the outdoors, that's what this hip part of the brain evolved to do. So the best way to preserve the brain is to have emotionally charged experiences in novel outdoor environments because it produces the most neurons and it backs up the neural networks and you, you get everything you want. So with a weight vest, you're getting all of this. And I, you know, you've seen some of this literature too. The single most important on the physical side for peak performance aging, the single most important thing you can do over time is leg strength. Leg strength inversely correlates with mortality, right? And there's a bunch of different reasons for it. Some of it has to do with that our, our leg bones are the biggest bones in our body. So we're increasing bone health there. Some of it has to do with if, as long as you have leg strength, balance doesn't go, you don't succumb to falls and it, on and on and on. But a weight vest was this sort of the single best way to do it. The only caveat is I always say that like start any movement training by going to see a movement professional who can watch you walk and figure out like what you, you, oh, you broke your ankle when you were 16 and you overcompensate this way and like fix your body first before you start adding a bunch of new load. Totally agree with that. Right. Otherwise you're going, just going to injure yourself and you're going to go in the other direction. And I always say with a weight vest, like start slowly, start like, if you think you can hike a 20 minute hill with your weight vest, start by hiking 20 minutes on flat ground, like very slowly. So your mind can't wander if there's any level of exertion, right? 
Like, so if you're really exerting yourself, you're focused on what you're doing. So I found that I could hike with a weight vest and use when I could do like a 90 minute hike with at a certain weight with my wine wandering throughout. I was like, okay, you've mastered that level. Go heavier or go faster. <laughs> right. Or, right. So I could use like what my brain was doing as a measure of like exertion levels as a really great feedback mechanism with the weight vest. And I was like, you know, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal tool across the boards. I'm a big fan of them for training. In fact, during ski season, I've started to, even on my off days, I wear like a 12 pound weight vest mm -hmm. just so I'm, you know, getting a little something on my hikes, even if it's my rest day, because I'm trying to raise the like baseline level of my rest days a little higher too. So I've been playing with that a lot this year. Yeah, I was, I had this, made a comment the other day to, to a friend of mine. I said, you know, if we could issue weight vests to kids in school, we'd solve a lot of problems, right? You, you suddenly seeing kids dropping weight and, and, you know, getting much healthier and be, being more athletic and being more focused just by giving them a weight vest and say, here. To me, it's the ultimate in like passive exertion in right? a sense. So it's perceived exertion in a weight vest is you notice it for the first five minutes yeah. and then you don't even notice it. And so like we know this from other studies on weight vests, perceived exertion versus real exertion Perceived exertion while you're wearing a weight vest is actually usually 5 to 10% under the actual work you're doing. Yeah. You think you're doing less work than you're actually doing. Like for America, where they want everything in a pill and you want everything easy, right. <laughs> this is the only thing that is legitimately easy. Right. It's actually wild. I'm a really big fan of them. Yeah, so if you're listening, get yourself a weight vest at brutefortraining.com. And, and start wearing it at work. You know, I, I showed up at, at meetings with my weight vest on and, you know, now my team is like, yeah, okay. in our country, this has got a ton of stuff on it. I break it down a lot. I'm a big fan. The longest chapter in the book is the one that breaks down like the weight vest and the weight vest hiking and the like, I was just so fascinated by what an amazing tool. Well, this has been an amazing conversation, uh, Stephen. So in our country. Where do you want people to go to kind of learn more about the book? And, and Yeah, the book's available anywhere. narcountry.com, G-N-A-R, country.com is the website for the book. The cool thing on the website, we, you know, we ran a bunch of really crazy peak performance aging experiments, and we had National Geographic cameramen follow us around the whole time. So, like, you don't even take my word for any of it. You can go watch videos and check that out, too. So, narcountry.com, but it, the book's available anywhere, and, you know, if you're actually going to listen to what I, I have to say, support local independent bookstores if you can. <laughs> they need you. That's right. Stephen, thanks so much for your time today. I look forward to seeing you on the slopes uh, with our weight vests on. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> thanks, Mark. All right. Booyah. What a fascinating conversation. I love Stephen Collar. What a fascinating, interesting guy. Um, gosh, he's written 14 books and he's still going strong. I love this NAR Country concept, growing old, staying red. Check out his book at narcountry.com and uh, go get yourself a weight vest at brutefortraining.com and uh, start training with that weight vest. Start wearing it at work and just hiking and walking. But what an incredible way to just improve all of those five physical skills we talked about and to challenge yourself every day. Show notes are at markdevine.com. The YouTube video will be up on a YouTube channel. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Mark Devine and on Instagram and Facebook at Real Mark Devine. Send me ideas for guests or send me questions and we'll get them answered. Plug for my newsletter, Divine Inspiration, which comes out every Tuesday, where I've got 
show notes for the podcast of the week. I've got my blog. I've got other articles and interesting things that come across my desk, including a book that I'm reading and a practice. So go to markthebind.com, sign up and subscribe and refer to your friends. Thanks so much to my great team, Jason Sanderson and Jeff Haskell and uh, Catherine Devine, who helped produce the podcast, bringing guests like Stephen to you every week, as well as the Divine Inspiration newsletter. Reviews and ratings are very, very helpful for the podcast. So if you haven't done so, please consider doing so wherever you listen, Apple or Spotify. It's very helpful to help other people find it and to stay at the top of the rankings, which keeps me motivated. Thanks so much also for doing the work of improving your mind and your body and being part of the solution for creating a more positive world and uh, pushing back against all the negativity and violence. This has to be done one person at a time, starting with you and me. So until next time, keep doing the work. This is Coach Dubai. Hoo-yah, out here.